In this week's Parsha, we continue learning about the responsibilities of the Levitical tribes to transport the tabernacle and its components. In the previous portion, we learned about the responsibilities of the uh, Kohathite family. Uh, and in our current portion, we learn about the responsibilities of the tribes of Gershon and Merari. However, the Torah then transitions into the test for the Sota, the wayward wife, and the laws of the Nazarite. Our Parsha concludes by recounting the various offerings brought by the tribal heads for the inauguration service of the tabernacle. The topic we're going to explore now, however, is six short verses wedged in between the laws of the Nazarite and the dedication offerings. Numbers 6, chapters, uh, of chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, uh, records for us what is commonly called the uh, Berkat Kohanim, that, that's the, the, the priestly blessing, also known as the Aaronic benediction. And it reads, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The Lord instructed Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, that's the priests, to bless the children of Israel with this liturgical formulation. Every day across the world, this tripartite blessing is bestowed upon the Jewish people. When it is recited in the synagogue and in uh, like congregations like Beit Zayit, the congregation turns their eyes away from the Kohen, or the one reciting it, in the absence of the Kohen. And this is to remind us that blessings, particularly this blessing, do not come from the Kohen, but they are something that comes directly from Hashem. As we read, and I will bless them. The Kohen is merely the conduit through which this blessing is imparted. When the blessing is spoken by a Kohen, the congregation responds with Amen to affirm the blessing and take possession of it, so to speak. However, when a Kohen is not present and the blessing is recited by a non-Kohen, then the congregation responds with the phrase, Kin Yehi Ratzilam, which means, May it be so. We do that here at uh, Beit Zayit, right? Why is the response different when someone who is not a Kohen pronounces the blessing? The person reciting the blessing in place of a Kohen actually prefaces the blessing by saying, Our God and the God of our fathers bless us with the three-part blessing in the Torah that was written by the hand of Moses, your servant, and that was spoken by Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, your holy people. As, and it is said, uh, and, and uh, Garrett just did that a few moments ago, right? Since, uh, since the Kohen is the one designated to actually bestow this blessing, this pre preface changes the language from a blessing to a request, to which we respond, may it be so. But do blessings actually have any power? Do humans have the power to impart blessings on individuals by their words? Well, let's take a look at the example of, of uh, when Isaac blessed Jacob in place of Esau. When Esau came in from the field, just like Jacob had received his father's blessing, he expected to receive the blessing reserved for the firstborn. However, as we know, that didn't happen. 
When Isaac realized what had happened, he told Esau that Jacob had taken his blessing, saying, Behold, I'm just going to make sure it's working here. Yep, there we go. Uh, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given for him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? We find that in Genesis 27, verse uh, 37. If Isaac thought like most of us uh, do in the West, he might have just have said, okay, uh, I retract what I told uh, Jacob. Now I'll confer those blessings on you. But Isaac didn't think this way because he knew the power of blessings. He knew that God could bring blessings through him that would affect another person's life. He also knew that if he simply retracted what he had uh, was spoken or what, what, what was spoken, it would not change what God had spoken through him. This is why Esau trembled when he found out that he had blessed Jacob. And uh, he told Esau, he shall be blessed. He has taken away your blessing. Two scriptures there. All right. Uh, the power of blessing is real, but not a magic formula. We must wield it properly in order for it to be effective. For example, Every Friday night, we bless our sons that they might be like Ephraim and Manasseh. We do that Saturday's uh, Shabbat at, at Beit Eight as well. And, and, and uh, equally, we say to our daughters, uh, we pray they would be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But over both our sons and our daughters, we recite the priestly blessing in the hopes that God would protect them and bless them in the special way that only this blessing speaks of. Pronouncing blessings over others, particularly our children, is a powerful way to instill within them the affirmation that God has a purpose for their lives and that their eyes be open to see how that will play out if they will allow him to govern their lives. May we also bless and not curse, and may we live to see these blessings be fulfilled in our lifetime. And that's my first point. My second point and you might need to cover your ears for just a minute because I'm going to get a little irreverent here. My next point is, babies! Isn't, isn't that what naturally comes to your mind after reading this week's Torah portion? <laughs> Confused? Let me explain. This week's reading contains an unusual ritual, the testing of the sota, the wayward wife, right? This is a strange and even fantastical ritual, quite foreign and bizarre to the modern mind. To, to our modern ear, it appears to be more akin to alchemy than biblical instruction. It goes like this. If a woman uh, was suspected of adultery and had been warned in regard to certain actions that could lead to inappropriate behavior, she would be brought to the Kohen or the priest in the tabernacle to undergo this unusual interrogation. It begins with her bringing a grain offering of, je of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, uh, bringing iniquity to remembrance. The Kohen then takes a clay pot filled with sacred water from the bronze lager uh, of the tabernacle and adds to it some of the dust from the floor of the tabernacle. He then uncovers his head and places her grain offering into his hands. He then makes her swear an oath. The oath attests either to her innocence or to her guilt. If she's innocent, then the waters of cursing will, be, uh, will have no effect. But if she's guilty, uh, then an awful curse will come upon her that will make her womb swell and her thigh fall away. It's uh, found in uh, 
chapter 5, 22. After this, the Kohen writes the entire curse upon a scroll, and he then scrapes off the text which contains the divine name of God into the water mixture. You still with me? After this, the woman drinks the mixture of water, dust and ink, and waits to see if her innards will rot. <laughs> Does this not seem a bit insane? Why would the creator of the universe prescribe such a strange ritual filled with such mystical components to be a test against idolatry? Or adultery. Adultery. I'm sorry. I don't know what was wrong with me this morning. Why do we need this exotic ritual? The fact of the matter is that human nature has a tendency to incline itself towards doubt and suspicion. A suspicious and jealous husband will never have peace of mind outside of the miraculous. Nothing will ease his mind in regard to the innocence of his wife other than a confirmation from the God of the universe himself. Therefore, God created this elaborate procedure by which a woman could be either convicted or acquitted in a case where there was just enough evidence to suspect her impropriety, but not enough evidence to convict her by the traditional means. This trial would settle the case once and for all. There would be no human witnesses and no jury, but there would also be no doubt. If she suffered an excruciating death, her guilt would be evident. However, if she lived through the process, not only would she be completely released from any suspicion, but she would be rewarded for her endurance. And her reward would be one of the best gifts of all, babies. Yes, her womb would be opened and she would begin bearing children. So what's the point of this, of this uh, mysterious instruction? The ultimate endgame for the test of the sota is not necessarily the death of an adulteress but the restoration of a home. The sages call this ultimate goal shalom bayit, or that means uh, marital harmony. Literally, it means a peaceful home. Because a healthy marriage is so important, the God of the universe created this elaborate test by which a man and woman could be rejoined as one unit. It's so important to him that he's willing that his name be erased and mixed with the dust of the earth in order that husband and wife would be reunited. How important is Shalom Bayit to you? And uh, that's my final question. And uh, I just want to uh, make sure uh, that I wish you a very peaceful home. Uh, shalom in your home. Uh, shalom Bayit uh, to you and yours in Yeshua's name.